Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your All Star host, Heather Berlin. I'm a neuroscientist and professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai here in New York City. And my co-host today, as you all know him very well, is Chuck Nice. Hey, Heather. So tonight we're going to take your cosmic queries about one of the most exciting and difficult arenas of science, consciousness and the human brain. And to help me out with this, I brought on philosopher and longtime friend, Dave Chalmers. Yes. And Dave is a... Nice to have you here. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, So Dave's a philosopher. He's a professor of philosophy and of neuroscience at NYU and co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness. Wow. And he specializes in philosophy of mind, so... And although I'm Australian, I'm not very good at surfing, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is unacceptable, David. (laughs) So, Dave... Uh, you know, you're famous for having framed the distinction between the hard and easy problems of consciousness. So what's so hard about the hard problem? Well, consciousness is all about subjective experience. It's about how we experience the world from the inside. I look at you, I see some colors, I experience red and green, I hear some sounds. There's all this inner movie in our head, and it's all subjective. And And the question is, how do you explain it? in terms of our scientific model of the world. Science is meant to be objective. You look at someone from the outside, you see a brain, you see a machine, you see a big mechanism, it walks and talks, it behaves. How does that objective mechanism, this amazing computer we have inside our head, how does that somehow get you to subjective experience? No one really knows right now how you get from objectivity to subjectivity. That's a hard problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's that's fascinating the way you say that too because when you when you talk about that journey, there are different gradations of that journey too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll get into that later. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. well, some people you can say that if you explain all the, the sort of easy problem, if you can find all the neural correlates for all of your perceptions, mm-hmm. um, that there's nothing left over. Okay, so now let's, away, but we let's can break this that. down for the people who may not have understood what you said. <laughs> I mean, not that that would be me, because I know exactly what that meant. But for those of who, uh, who are new to neuroscience, mm-hmm. uh, what, what you just said was? If basically every sensation you had, right. we can directly correlate it to a specific process in your brain. Right. And we can do that for everything you experience consciously. We can tie it to a specific process in your brain. Right. That would be solving what we call the easy problem of consciousness. And some say that if you can just solve that problem, there's nothing left to explain. Nothing left. So basically, uh, we would find that consciousness is this uh, outworking of neurosynaptic functions, basically. It's like every little pop and ping in the brain, we're able to pinpoint it, and then it's like, hey, that's what consciousness is. When that stops, you cease to exist. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so almost everyone thinks there's some brain basis for consciousness, or some brain correlate for consciousness. You stimulate a certain part of my brain, I'll feel pain, I'll get a sensation of red, or something. So there are correlations here, but what we want in science is more than just a correlations. Hey, when you hit this bit of the brain, you get a bit of consciousness. You want an explanation. Right. You want to be able to explain how it is that consciousness is there in the first place. And it looks like just mapping the brain and say, this area goes with pain, and this area goes with color, and this area goes with fear, and this area goes with hunger. That doesn't yet give us an explanation. Seems like you could think of all that stuff going on in the brain without any consciousness at all. You get a really sophisticated computer reacting this way unconsciously. Mm-hmm. But that's not what it's like for us. So the hard problem is explain why it's this way for us. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think ultimately what we need is an overarching theory of consciousness so we can predict any system, that whether it has it or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so, I mean... 
Dave, you've kind of been at the forefront of this discussion since the 1990s, and you've seen like the rise and fall of lots of different theories of what the neural basis of consciousness is. But do you have currently a favorite theory? And, and if so, can it really tackle the hard problem? Well, my own view is actually that, I mean, I love what's happened in the science of consciousness over the last, say, 20 plus years. When I started getting into this field in the early to mid 90s, consciousness was a word that was kind of off limits for scientists, especially philosophers like me, were allowed to talk about it. It was a relatively respectable topic there, but you're a scientist and you're a scientist, you touch consciousness and it's like, okay, well, I hope you got tenure because otherwise uh, you're going to be <laughs> sure. digging your reputation a bit. Actually, you'll, you'll be saying, would you like that in a pump or a sneaker? <laughs> Actually, that's one of my, um, my PhD supervisor said to me, I said, I really want to study consciousness. And he said, well, you know, first, why don't you get, you do some real science first, you know, and then maybe when you get older and retire, you could write a book about consciousness. And yeah. In fact, it was Francis Crick, you know, mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, years ago got the Nobel prize for figuring out the structure of DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, once you got, once you got to be 70 or so, then he said, okay, now we should be paying some attention to consciousness. Well, okay, he's Francis Crick. It's uh, it's safe for him. And he started pulling a lot of people into the field, along with Christoph Koch, the neuroscientist, who was younger but still very, very respectable. And those guys said, okay, neuroscientists ought to be thinking about consciousness. A few other people in the 90s, and suddenly, mid-90s, neuroscientists were at least allowed to talk about the problem. Right. And that sort of was the emergence of this whole field of trying to understand the neural correlates of consciousness. Yes. And now we have big conferences dedicated to it, and it's a legitimate thing you can get a PhD in. But that only started as recently as the 1990s when basically Francis Crick put his stamp of approval on this and right. said that not, it's not just for the realm of philosophers. So it, from a scientific standpoint, you're, is it, would you say that we're still in the nascent stages of discovery when it comes to this field? Yeah, I would say. I mean, we've, we've, we've done a lot, but I think the sort of rate-limiting factor is our understanding of just how the human brain works. I mean, it's such a complex piece of machinery. That was going to be my next question. So what you have seen in neuroscience is this proliferation of uh, data about the brain itself and how it works and the sectioning of the brain and uh, the, the chemical processes that are involved in all these brain functions. So can you just continue down that road and will that lead to discoveries about consciousness or do you have to search someplace else? The tr I, mean, I think what's coming out of neuroscience right now is amazing and we understand the brain a lot better than we did 20 or 25 years ago, but okay. so much of it is still there at the level of mechanisms and correlations. This kind of works for what I call the easy problems of consciousness. Maybe you want to explain how it is I react to uh say, objective features of my behavior. Somebody puts a display in front of me with a red cross and I can point to it. Then maybe we can find the neural mechanisms there that governs my behavior, my response, my pointing, or even my walking, my talking. These are objective behaviors you can give functions for explaining. But nothing in any of this mechanistic story seems to say why all this should be accompanied by subjective experience. That's the, uh, the hard problem. For that, we need kind of a more like... Uh, general theory of consciousness that goes over and above cataloging the specific mechanisms and finding what does what. Well, I mean, I think there are ways we can get, so beyond just trying to understand the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology of the brain, which is in itself important, okay. in parallel, you know, people are doing these kind of functional studies where you can, you know, 
put people in a scanner or, or even record from individual neurons in a, in a live human um, with these different techniques we have and have them do different tasks and say, okay, what's happening when they're conscious of something, when they're not conscious? There's studies being done with people in different comatose states, yeah. um, you know, different states. You use, use me for that. Yeah. <laughs> that way most of my life. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, are you even conscious right now? <laughs> I'm still waking up. More coffee, please. Right, exactly. Um, you know, so they're, they're very... Um, clever ways that we're starting to probe this question with right. science. So again, I don't think it's left purely to the realm of philosophy, but I think we have the better we understand the physical mechanisms of the brain, the better we are able to bridge this gap between, you know, understanding that and then our subjective experience and how they're interrelated. Cool. I think pretty well everyone admit though that we have not bridged that gap yet. You know? No, Some no. people think we're beginning. Some people think we've made an inch of progress over the Grand Canyon. Some people are defeatist and think we can never do it. It's yeah. like, you know, an ant trying to understand calculus. We'll never be able to understand this mechanism. And also we're limited uh, by the very thing itself to understand itself. Uh, speak for yourself. I saw the movie Ants and quite frankly, I think they're pretty damn smart. Okay, so. <laughs> I'm all in favor of ant consciousness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, well, by the way, now it's seen now you just said that, but don't ants have a certain consciousness, or is that just an ex mm -hmm. a chemical exchange that leads to a group think and group actions? Or is there a certain colony consciousness? Mm. Why did I just get so excited about that? <laughs> maybe. Like you yes, mentioned yes. ants and I just went yeah. off the charts. Well, like, maybe, wow. maybe maybe the ants are conscious and the ant colony is conscious. It's They're two different at all these different levels. Mm. Yeah. The ant colony seems to behave in this very cohesive way, you know, not totally unlike our human brain. Right. Or something. Could there be colony level consciousness? Well, I mean, there's some, there are different theories as, uh, of consciousness. And one is, and maybe we'll get into this, but it, it's called this integrated information theory of consciousness. It said, like, any system, any system that has a high degree of integrated, differentiated information. Right will have this property of consciousness. So the brain happens to be one of those systems that has a high degree of integrated uh, information. Integrated meaning like, you know, if you fire one neuron, it'll affect the other neuron. There's a relationship there. And so an ant will have some of it, um, but it becomes a very sort of what we call panpsychic view, right? So it says that basically anything can be conscious as long as it has some degree of integration of information. Um, and I mean, Dave, you've had a lot of, you've been sort of flirting with the idea of panpsychism. So do you really think that like a photon could be conscious? I like the idea that consciousness may be somehow fundamental mm -hmm. in the universe. We're used to the idea that in, in science, we take some things as real basic primitives, space and time, mass, mm -hmm. charge, and so on. So if it turns out you can't explain consciousness in terms of just adding up the old primitives. Then we need a new primitive. And then I'm inclined to think maybe consciousness is like that. And once you say that, you got to start taking seriously the idea that there might be some level of consciousness everywhere in the universe. Well, because, and, and I've heard people mostly on the internet, <laughs> speaking of consciousness, uh, but I've heard people actually discuss whether or not um, the universe itself is a system of consciousness. Now, if you're an astrophysicist, you'll say, you know, F off, you're, you know, you, that, that belongs in a different realm. But when you look at these systems, uh, 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 cosmological systems, you might say there may very well be. Well, I guess to put it into perspective, according to this theory, right, mm -hmm. integrated information, and when Dave says it's fundamental, it just means it's a property of the universe like gravity, right? right. So exactly. anytime this, there's integration of information, there'll be some sort of bit of consciousness. Actually, they, they can measure it mathematically. The measure is called phi. Phi it would be the amount of consciousness that system has. But when you start talking about the universe, 
the distances between matter are so large yes. that the material isn't necessarily integrated, meaning that if something happens, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, it's not going to necessarily affect something happening here. So you need that level of integration for there to be that property of consciousness. So I would say that the distances of the matter are too far to actually have a meaningful interaction in the universe. Okay. And I... I, I, I uh, who am I to disagree with that? <laughs> but there are others who disagree. I mean, um, like, you know, I've had some conversations with Deepak Chopra who thinks consciousness just exists in the universe and we are a manifestation of it. You know, it's sort of the opposite way. So I say matter creates consciousness. He would say consciousness exists and it creates matter, which is a total flip side. Well, I mean, you know what? We're, we're getting so so into this so quickly. Oh, we need to get to we cosmic queries. We need to get queries. into cosmic queries. Get to it. Because when you brought up Deepak Chopra, I was just like, all right, now here, I'm ask you this now. But I don't want to do it because it's not about me. It's about the people who took the time to uh, write us on mm -hmm. all the different um, uh, social and uh, internet at mediums. Uh, so we always start with a Patreon patron. And uh, the reason we do that is because Patreon patrons uh, patronize us. They actually support us financially. And when you give us money, uh, we will do whatever you want. Basically, uh, what I'm trying to say is, welcome to Star Talk. Uh, we are whores. Um, <laughs> Intellectual whores. Intellectual whores. <laughs> we'll give out knowledge for money. Exactly. To the knowledge brothel. Okay. <laughs> How much money do I get for saying neuroscience will explain consciousness? <laughs> bids of a million? hundred thousand? All right, here we go. Uh, Frank Kane uh, comes to us through Patreon and says this. Is there a difference between consciousness and sentience are both just the ability to direct the current attention of your brain. And Frank comes to us from Orlando, Florida. So being a sentient being and being conscious, are they materially the same thing? So like a, a plant and a human being, you know, one is sentient, one is not. And, you know, what's the deal with that? First thing I would say here is these are both just words. You know, okay. Consciousness and sentience. And they can mean whatever you want, and both of them get used in multiple ways, you know. But I guess there's a coarse sense of both of those words where they come to the same thing. When I say sentience, what I think of is subjective experience. Like there's someone, there's not just a robot here, there's someone home inside my head mm -hmm. thinking and feeling and experiencing. And when I say consciousness, I mean the same thing. I mean subjective consciousness. Someone at home. So I'd say consciousness and sentience for me come to the same thing. That said, a lot of people use these words for different things. Some people use the word consciousness just for the difference, say, between being asleep and being awake. Okay. And then maybe even a robot could wake up and, you know, it's lying down, recharging its batteries, now it gets up, it's walking around. In a certain sense, it's conscious. If someone wants to use the word consciousness for that, I'm not going to argue with them. I'm going to say that's not what I'm talking about. So in philosophy, we like to define our terms whenever we can. I would say by consciousness, I mean the subjective experience of the mind and the world. Okay. By sentience, I mean the same thing. I, All right. I, I mean, I think to, it also, I agree with Dave, it depends on how you define the terms, but I think a lot of people conflate the terms of, for example, with consciousness, you don't need language. You don't need self-awareness for okay. it. Yeah. You don't even need a content of consciousness necessarily. All right. It's sort of just being aware, just being, you know, experiencing, feeling pain, um, mm -hmm seeing the color red without a context even without a word to describe it without knowing i'm the one who's doing the experiencing so it's this very raw thing that so you know 
a lot of times, you know, computers and things can do very complex cal calculations and in some ways can be more intelligent than us. But just having this pure ability to feel pain might be something that's very fundamental, that they may not be able to do that simple thing. Well, let me tell you, speaking for all computers everywhere, I, I hope that program is never made. Right. I don't want to feel pain. I'm sorry. Why? <laughs> Why? Why was I programmed to feel pain? <laughs> Without there, there pain, there's no pleasure. <laughs> oh, well, mm. they, now that's a very interesting... It, is that true, though? I, really, is that true that also, without no without pain there is no pleasure? I think pleasure would not be as great without pain, and also pain is adaptive because there are people who are who ha don't have the ability to feel pain, and they end up dying very early because they're they're walking into things. They're you know pain is a signal that we need to survive in this world. So true. I've seen, I've seen a group of people saying that even mm -hmm. basic computer programs like current machine learning systems, mm -hmm. you reward them. Sometimes you say you're doing the wrong thing. Do something different, and that's like negative reinforcement. Or sometimes you say, "Hey, you're doing the right thing." That's you give them positive reinforcement. Some people are saying that's actually pain and pleasure for those machine learning systems. And there's a group on the internet called "People for the Ethical Treatment of Reinforcement Learners." Okay, like people for the ethical whoever, whoever you are, those people that that Dave just said, okay. Get a life. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Treat your programs well. Exactly. <laughs> All right. On that note, we have to wrap up this part of the show. <laughs> but we'll be right back with more of your cosmic queries. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Heather Berlin. Co-hosting today is Chuck Nice. Yes, yes. And joining us as our expert guest, a guest is David Chalmers. Hey. So we took a look at your questions about consciousness in the brain. And uh, Chuck, you want to throw something? Yeah, at let's us? let's continue with our cosmic queries of the consciousness. And um, this is uh, Adam Rammer from Facebook. And Adam wants to know this: Is free will an illusion? Now this is a uh, uh, an off uh, bandied about discussion and one that I've never heard an answer to. <laughs> so David, one of my favorite views about this matter is we have to believe in free will. We have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it depends on what you mean by free will. It's a really annoying thing that philosophers often say. It all depends what you mean right. by the word. What is Freedom. A freedom is just something like the ability to, normally we say someone's acting freely roughly when they can do what they want. If I want a sandwich and I can get a sandwich, if I want to go to the movies tonight and I can go to the movies tonight, then we say, hey, I'm free because I could do what I want. Now, some people say, ah, but you weren't truly free because maybe all that was determined in advance and you're unraveling, you're just working like clockwork. And maybe the fact that what I wanted was determined in advance by the laws of physics. It was determined that I would want to go to the movies, and therefore it was determined that I went to the movies, and then they'll say, ah, so that's not free. I guess what I'm inclined to think is, whoever said I got to choose what I want? You know, there are some things that are just part of my makeup, and so on. If, as long as I can do, if I can get the things that I, that I want to do, then I've got a certain kind of free will. But if you require that free will means what I do is completely unpredictable in principle and not determined in advance, then who knows? Maybe we don't have free will. Well, that's a. I'm sorry. I have to go. I, I, so, I think what people want to know is: Are the choices that I make truly choices, or 
has every choice that I've made in life been manipulated somehow by circumstances mm. that are either a compilation of circumstances or one uh, one particular predictor that came along and and moved me to that direction? I mean, this is this is something I've thought a lot about. Um, so it's some like it's one of my favorite topics. Um, again, I, I agree it, that it depends on how you define it. So if you take the sort of classic Cartesian definition of free will, it's saying that if everything in the environment was exactly the same and everything in your brain was exactly the same, like every neuron firing was exactly the same way, could you have done otherwise? Could you have chosen otherwise? Yeah, right. Okay. And so at least according to what we see in neuroscience, the answer is is no. Mm -hmm. We and there's this very famous experiment in the 1980s done by Benjamin Libet where they look at brain activation. Um, it was very controversial, and there's some people who still refute it. But basically, looking at brain activation and saying to a person, you know, you can press this button whenever you get the urge to do so. Right. And a person will just have to look at this little, like, sort of thing going around the clock and say where it was, at what point when they had the intention to move. Not even when they, because it takes time to actually do the motion. Right, exactly. So they would say exactly when they had the intention to move. And then they found that about 300 milliseconds before they even had the conscious intention that they were about to make a move, you would see this gearing up of brain activation. Mm -hmm. You called it the readiness potential. So the brain is kind of gearing up for you to go either, let's say, left or right. Mm -hmm. And now modern techniques using fMRI can make tell you, decide whether you're going to go left or right up to 10 seconds even before you're even consciously right. aware of so what you're Before right. you're consciously aware, we can quantifiably measure that you're going to go left or right? With pretty decent accuracy. Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's, so, that's fast. That's insane. What I say... <laughs> that's awesome. I think that... I often, my sort of saying on this is that maybe your unconscious has free will, but you're just the last to know about it. Oh, man, we just went down the <laughs> rabbit hole! <laughs> like the, zombie, the zombie within is controlling you. Exactly. Uh, I mean, you are, you are a product. Like, wait a minute, it's like Men in Black, the guy that's faces open up and there's a little alien in there yeah, pulling yeah. all the levers. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, we first of all, I mean, we're a product of our genes, our experiences right. we've had over time, our brain processing things outside of awareness constantly I and mean, if we had to process everything consciously it would be too much for us you know absolutely so all even, of these even, things even from a, what, what you just yeah. say there so I'm sorry yeah. I, I just find it so fascinating but what you just said there even from a sight standpoint you are not seeing right now 100% your brain is interpolating all of this information yeah. it takes a small little portion and fills in the rest of the information oh, yeah. and, and, and so go ahead I'm sorry yeah. I just that, we, we like, say that there's this saying that it's our experience is a uh, controlled hallucination yes and when we all agree upon it we call it reality that's wow sort of like what we but that so basically yes our brain is making approximations all the time uh -huh. we are a product of our past experience our genes you know what our brain is processed outside of awareness that all being said uh -huh. so if you don't even have if we don't have the cartesian classic free will we still have personal responsibility that's a different thing. So some people say, oh, if I have no free will, I can do whatever I want. What does right. it matter? But we still, first of all, have the illusion of free will, which is important for many things. Studies show that if you tell people they don't have free will, they're more likely to like cheat and um, act poorly. So we, the fact that we have this illusion is important for the way we, we behave. Right. But 
Self-control is a different thing. Self-control, the ability to inhibit your desire. So let's say, you know, you want that piece of chocolate cake right now, but you have the ability to not do it. I don't. I don't. Well, <laughs> I don't. But I want we, the cake now. Give me the cake. Better stop playing with me. Give me the cake. <laughs> but, but I heard yeah. there was going to be cake. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I would hold you less responsible for your actions because you have less capacity to have self-control. So then we think about something like murder. If somebody has self-control on a whole array of different things, but then they go and murder someone, we hold them more responsible than, let's say, a child who hasn't fully developed the capacity to have self-control, which right. has a lot to do with prefrontal cortex function that isn't fully developed yet. Right. Or someone who has mental why retardation. teenage boys are idiots beyond belief. Right. <laughs> exactly. So you're, you're, we determine person, a person's responsibility based on their capacity to have self-control. So if you have a, a huge brain damage to your prefrontal cortex, you have less capacity to have self-control. Oh my God. That is, okay, so you just... I know you know this because you're a neuroscientist. I know you know this because you're a philosopher. But can you talk about, and guys, we're getting back to your cosmic queries. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hijack this, but I'm so fascinated <laughs> right now. Cosmic query from Chuck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so please talk about uh, these instances in medical um, um, uh, records and recordings where people have had damage to their prefrontal cortex and it has changed their entire personality. So we find like hypersexualization or people becoming murderous or, and they cannot, they cannot help themselves or can they? <laughs> Do you want yeah, well, Phineas Gage, this railroad worker in the 19th century, he got like a big pipe went through his skull, and he okay. was amazingly lucky to survive this, but somehow didn't miss, didn't hit any truly vital areas. He got through it, they took the, uh, they took the pipe out, and then gradually, though, over the next two or three weeks, they discovered his personality had changed completely. He used to be this kind of pleasant, nice guy. Suddenly, he was a bit of a sociopath, mm -hmm. kind of angry and violent and rude to his family. Good and morning, Phineas. Screw you! I had a <laughs> pipe in my head. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly. So somehow, some of his self-control just disappeared, and there were some brain areas somehow devoted to self-control. This just messed with, and now he really couldn't help, his, help himself. So now do you say, do you blame him? For that, well, he just had a, a pipe through his head, but now he no longer has he no longer has self control. You might say, well, how do you treat this guy? Well, we better at least for our own safety, you know, somehow right. keep him under under control somehow. And just but to clarify, like it's, it's full. The prefront the the. Uh, bar went straight through, straight his, prefrontal through his prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex but yeah. the, the, you can kind of think of it, it's like our brake system of the brain. When it's damaged, we we have these subcortical sort of drives or impulses that are normally kept at, under control by this prefrontal cortex that thinks about the future consequences of your actions. But when it's damaged or underactivated or not well connected to the subcortical areas, you lose that ability to have control. But that being said, if you look at anybody who's, a, let's say, a mass murderer, I predict there'll be something I'm we find wrong sorry. yeah, with their, with their brain, but does that still mean that they shouldn't be locked up? You know, I so th it becomes an ethical question. It becomes ethical, right? Yeah. Until we find there's a mass murderer gene, does that get them off the hook? And there is some genetic basis to impulsivity, actually. Um, if you have, I think it's the short allele of the serotonin, a certain serotonin receptor that codes for a serotonin receptor, those people tend to be much more impulsive. Yeah. So, I mean, there are biological differences that affect the way your brain develops, or there's just simply you get a lesion, you get brain damage. So I, there was one particular case, as this is a criminal case, where a young man who had never any crime in his entire life had some kind of brain tumor uh, that affected his prefrontal cortex, and 
he started uh, watching pedophilia. pedophilia. Right. Yeah, pedophilia. yeah, yeah. He all of a sudden, like in his 40s, started developing pedophilia. pedophilia. They were going to lock him up because he lived with a young stepdaughter and he started getting these headaches. They went and did an MRI, a huge tumor huge right tumor. in his prefrontal cortex. Removed the tumor, symptoms went away. A year later, he was allowed to return home. Everything, a year later, symptoms came back and sure enough, the tumor had grown yeah, back. Had grown back. So, so here is like a direct correlation, but is that enough evidence to say that this guy is not responsible? Because some people yeah. will say, and here's a philosophical uh, uh, conundrum, some people will say, no, you were always a pedophile. That was already in you, and this tumor just brought it out. Sometimes new things happen, like Phineas Gage, the pipe probably changed him. Right. You can't say that pipe was in him all along. You know, that really, that changed him. But other things, people decide to do something. Some people, you know, in the middle of their life, just have a midlife crisis and start going crazy, doing all kinds of stuff. Uh-huh. In a certain sense, that's up to them. They made a decision that they could have not made. And look, yeah, maybe you can say they had the midlife crisis gene or there was something that happened in their brain that triggered this. But still, most of the time, most of us as ordinary people do have some control. We can choose not to do things. Mm-hmm. You can't choose about getting a pipe through your head, and maybe you can't choose about mm-hmm. getting a brain tumor, but I would distinguish those cases from cases of ordinary choice, even if there is some brain explanation of the ordinary choice. And the question is, how do you draw that boundary? And no That's one knows it. how to do that. So, the, so those are extraordinary circumstances. And, yeah, and Chuck, re- next time, tweet in your question. <laughs> <laughs> tweet in, yeah, very good. No, no, no. I'm sorry, guys. Let's move on. <laughs> hey, Scarlett Franks from Instagram says this. Hi, Dr. Berlin. I have, a disasso- I have a dissociative identity disorder, and I'd love to know what consciousness research makes of this condition. Are my alters discrete consciousness, or are they one fragmented consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now that's a, first you're going to have to explain because she has a lot packed into this question and you have to start with the uh, mm-hmm. the DID and then you have to go on to break that because yeah. I know people, this this sounds like mumbo jumbo, but right. it's a really, a really packed question. So basically um, what she's talking about is called dissociative identity disorder or DID, which was formerly called multiple personality disorder. Right. Now the reason the name changed is because they used to think that it was um, many different personalities mm-hmm. right that kind of but the reason we name change the name is because we think actually it's you have this one identity that gets fragmented out into these different what we call dissociative identity states mm-hmm. okay so now usually what you have is one um a lot of the time people who have this have experienced some sort of traumatic event in their life okay. which triggers this it's actually very uh, adaptive to kind of dissociate we all do it in certain states you know to be kind of out of your body to, if something really scary is happening or you know protect our psyche um, but if you often experience a lot of trauma it might be you're in a place where you can never get back Okay, and this is one of those conditions. So you have a traumatic identity state a lot of the time where they have access to all the traumatic memories and the emotions associated with them. And then they have these neutral identity states of one or maybe many where they don't have access to those memories. They say it never happened to them. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is they don't even have a physiologic reaction if you read them, say, a memory script of something where in the traumatic state, they'll have an increased heart rate and um, they'll feel all these emotions. And in the neutral state, they won't at all. Uh, so it's a really interesting phenomenon. And one idea is that well, we did. there's some neuroimaging studies that show that when they're in these different states, there are different patterns of brain activation. Wow. And it actually takes more activation to stay in that neutral state. You have parts of the prefrontal cortex that are 
down-regulating, that are turned on and suppressing parts of the brain that have to do with memory and emotion. So the brain is, con- well, not consciously, the brain is actively working yes. to keep you in this protective state. Exactly. Because the traumatic state, it sees as a harm. Right. And if you were in that state all the time, it would be too overwhelming. Too overwhelming. You wouldn't be adapted. And actually, the goal of therapy is to integrate these different states, to come back into one so that you have access to the traumatic memories, but you're able to deal with them in a, in a way that's adaptive. So this makes sense because when you're in a traumatic state like that, everything in your body is bad for you. Like your cortisol, your stress levels, adrenaline, all these things are bad for you. So if you were constantly in that state, I could see your brain saying, yo, man, we got to do something or this is going to kill us. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is it like that? But then it becomes maladaptive when you can't control the switching between these Uh, states. And, you know, you're in these two different brain states and that can be associated with different personalities, even with different reactions to drugs. In some cases, they're allergic to something in one state and not in another. I mean, it's amazing. One In one case, she was blind in one state and could see in another. And this does raise a philosophical question, which is, are there actually, is there more than one person in here? Is it just three personalities of one person? Ooh. Or is it three people, you know, the three faces of Eve or whatever? Are these right. actually three different people in there? And the people who argue for both, I think the consensus is probably one person, three modes or personas that person adopts. But there are more extreme cases, you know. People stop their experiments, people cut their brain. Mm-hmm. down the middle between the hemispheres. Mm-hmm. And basically, you've got two hemispheres inside your head, which are, to some extent, independent, independent of each other. Well, why couldn't it people be? people in one skull. Why couldn't it be? I mean, we do have physical chimeras in, in real life where people have two sets of DNA inside their same body. Yeah. Why couldn't we have two people inside the same brain? Well, I'm I, just asking a question. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm, making a statement. I would say it's more like two different states of consciousness. I think our... Our con- con- the idea of a person or a personality is a construct. Okay. We create it over time given our memories and how we've behaved in the past. And okay. um, so we have a sense of self and the sense of how we'll tend to act in certain situations. So it could be that this person, when they're in one brain state, they're a certain type of personality. And when they're in another brain state, they're a different type of personality. I wouldn't call it two different people. Okay. It's just two different brain states with what two different constructs. the split contracts. brain case? The split the brain, brain case the is different. And I think that is more like you have these two consciousnesses in the brain, not Separate two consciousnesses. personalities. Most of the time, it just appears as if there's... One person there, but you can do experimental things like show something to one half of the visual field and not the other and get different reactions. Maybe your right arm reaches out and says, this is great. And your left arm says, no way. Get out. But actually, I mean, we all have these consciousnesses in our head all the time. We just kind of, there's one dominant one. Okay. But there's always lots of stuff going on in the background. Wow. So uh, with that, I think we should uh, wrap up this segment. Okay. Um, hey, Scarlett Franks, thanks so much for the question. That was, <laughs> that was incredible. Awesome. Go ahead. Uh, all right. So we have to take a short break, and we'll have more about consciousness and the brain when Star Talk All-Stars returns. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. Heather Berlin here, your All Star host, and Chuck Nice there, co-hosting. That's, that's right. Hello. 
And joining us is NYU philosopher Dave Chalmers. Hey. So we've been talking about consciousness and the human brain, taking your cosmic queries. Yes, and we've had some doozies up until now. All of these questions are just uh, super interesting. And so we want to thank all of you who wrote in. Uh, let's go to uh, Duchess Montaigne from Instagram. Uh, I'm, I'm reading this because the tone of this question, I, I just hope this person knows you. Okay, this it says. I know a lot of duchesses, okay, so it could cool. very well be. Yeah, I, know, I know you travel in those circles. <laughs> uh, it says, Hey, Dr. Berlin, um, talk to me about DMT. Is it present at birth and death? Is it oh. present during dreams? What the heck is going on, girlfriend? <laughs> Swear to God, oh. verbatim. Wow. Verbatim. <laughs> DMT. DMT. Um, there's a lot in that. Um, and this isn't sort of my area of expertise, so okay. I'm not going to... There's some theories out there that um, it's sort of a psychedelic. It, it creates... It gives you hallucinations. And I think it might also... Might be an ayahuasca, which is, is that right? I have to check on this, which is this um, hallucinogen that they go down. A lot of people go down to South America and take and... <gasps> You know what I'm oh, talking I heard about? about this where it makes you violently ill, but you're violent, so, colorful, but you have spiritual. the best hallucinations yeah. ever. Yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. So like, it's like acid on acid. <laughs> I like that. Acid on acid. Yeah. I mean, it gives you these. And so a lot of people go and they're transformed and they say they meet their like spirit gods or whatever. You know, it's, it's, it's very, it's a very profound experience. Um, so some think that they really are tapping into something else. And I just say, look, when you put your brain into different states, you're going to experience reality in different ways or re whatever reality is. You're going to experience these sensations. The brain is interpreting them in different ways. So the way we experience the world now is going to be different than when you have alcohol or when you have DMT or and so I think it's all just a product of your brain. It's it's another hallucination, just like what we think reality is. Wow. Uh, well, all I know is this. I'm ready to have a DMT alcohol party. I have heard some people suggest, uh, you know, the the questioner asked about DMT being present at birth. Mm. There are some people out there who suggest that babies actually have a more psychedelic brain right. than we do as adults. They're like attending to everything. Right. Everything is amazing. It's like, yeah, maybe babies are having the equivalent of psychedelic experiences all the time. Well, they right? do like, look high. You grow up yeah. and you narrow focus. Yeah, they, the, when you look at a baby, I mean, they look like they are totally blasted. Yeah. I mean, watch a baby pick up a colorful block and just look at it like, Dude. I have to I have to put it a pitch in here because my husband he's a rapper and he raps about science and he wrote a rap about our new son who's going to be a year um, next month a year old um, called Dylan and it's all about what is Dylan experience yeah. and how you know is it like a psychedelic trip it's an amazing song yeah and the video is great so the video is like he's looking down and you see the perspective of the baby and oh, it's I like got it. is it online it's online it's called this. Dylan you, it's called you rap guide to consciousness look it up baby. rap guide to well, look it up on yeah. YouTube and we're I guess we'll put it up on Star Talk all access.com yeah, as well. So absolutely. anybody who wants to see it, who's already a subscriber, it'll be there for you. That sounds awesome. It's pretty cool. Cool. It's my little pitch. All right, Dylan. And <laughs> you know, but Dylan's not actually high, right? We don't know. <laughs> he probably is. I mean, he's awfully happy. He's a happy baby. <laughs> a little DMT in there. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go, Duchess. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about Ashley Silverhammer uh, coming to us from Instagram, who says, hello, could consciousness simply be more advanced? memory capability more so 
than other mammals. Uh, thank you. Now, that presupposes that other mammals are not conscious, and I would, I would tend to believe that you think otherwise. Yeah, I mean, as I said before, like a lot of these cognitive capacities we have, like for language or even memory, you don't need for consciousness. So I wouldn't say that memory gives us an advanced consciousness. Uh, there's a patient who had damage to his hippocampus and he had no memory. I mean, basically like every moment he kept a journal and he just said, I am now conscious for the very first time. I am just now <laughs> conscious for the very first time. Now I'm awake for the first time. It just goes on and on like know. that. Oh my God. So wait a minute. What's that movie? Oh, it was a great Memento? movie. Memento. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Memento. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. He wrote down messages on his on skin. His own, right. That was the only way he could have memories. Yeah, right. He, couldn't hold, he yeah. couldn't hold any memories. So the thing is you can have consciousness without memory. Without I mean, memory. it's a kind of weird state to be in but it's nonetheless you're aware I think and, what this question I might be talking about though is not just what we mean by, by raw consciousness but something like self-consciousness ah. a sense of ourselves as ah. a person with a history mm. and an identity and that's a lot of what people normally mean mm -hmm. when they talk about the word consciousness mm -hmm. I mean consciousness of yourself as a self and it sure looks like memory does a whole lot of the work involved in that maybe without any memories you can have that primitive self-consciousness. I am here now. It's not much of a self-consciousness, really our built-up sense of ourselves. I mean, we'll be based on a very large extent on our memories of our past, mm -hmm. our knowledge of our character. So maybe that's what they're yeah. getting at here. Well, I mean, so if you want to uh, look at it from that standpoint, then I would say there are other animals that um, kind of rival us in that area. Elephants, Elephants. being one mm. of them. So, well, actually, there's a there's a test um, that we give of called of self recognition. It's called the mirror test, where you put um, we want to see like when does a human develop self awareness? And the test is basically you put a little spot of red rouge somewhere with like you do it conspicuously so the person doesn't know that you've put it on, and then you take the baby and you put them in a mirror. And if they start rubbing themselves, the dot off themselves, that's self-awareness rather than thinking it's another. Right, that's another baby right. with a red dot. So babies, you know, the infants develop that at around it's 18 months. And then we found it, you can test in other animals. So they found it in dolphins. You can put a little smudge on them and you put a mirror underwater and they can recognize themselves. And they're like, that's and me. They try to, like, look at that crap it. on yeah. my head. Um, and hey, I'm not Catholic. Why? <laughs> Why do I have a, never mind. Sorry. A great, the great apes. Um, a lot of animals fail this, though, right? A lot of animals fail. Gorillas don't do, don't do too well. Yeah, exactly. So there's a couple that pass, and there was actually one elephant that passed, but not but not all. It was just one elephant. Just they one? Passed. Yeah. The question is, if they fail it, does that mean they're not self-conscious? Or does it just mean they're not good with mirrors? I was going to say, or they <laughs> or they just don't care that they have crap on their face. Right. <laughs> there's a lot of humans, I would say, it's not very conscious. <laughs> yeah, because I know some humans that would fail that test, too. Yeah. Like, yo, you got a little something right there. You got a little, eh, whatever. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. That's uh, Thank you so much for the question. Let's uh, move on to um, Evan Quinter, who says this. What regions of the brain? are thought to control consciousness and subconsciousness. Would they be found in the same or separate areas? So that's a that's a huge <sighs> that's question. A really big question. Huge, huge question. So, so I'll keep it short. I think it depends on your what the theory of consciousness is. Mm -hmm. um, so some people, especially so this um, integrated information theory of consciousness, the group who's working under that theory actually is now saying you just need the posterior part of the brain, the back of the brain okay. for um, raw sensation. Then if you are getting into more complex aspects of consciousness, then you start needing the prefrontal cortex. But you really just only need areas in the back of the brain. Other people, another theory is called the glo global neuronal workspace theory of consciousness, 
which basically says you need parts of the prefrontal cortex and you need feed these feedback loops to the back of the brain to get conscious awareness. Um, we generally, the evidence suggests that these subcortical areas just under that sort of the gray matter covers these evolutionarily older structures of the brain, right. that, that what's happening there tends to be unconscious or what this person calling like subconscious. And as things get into more cortical regions, and with different variations, depending on how the neurons are communicating, it tends to get more, become conscious. Interesting. But there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack yeah, there. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a great question, man. Mm -hmm. um, um, I don't think we can answer it in one show. <laughs> that's the problem. It'd be like a whole lecture <laughs> yeah, series yeah, it's, on it's, that. Yeah, exactly. Wow. But, uh, but thank you for that. Let's move on. And um, this is, Okay. Uh, by the way, so I have trouble pronouncing people's names correctly, and so people, oh. I think, send in names that they know I will not be able to pronounce. <laughs> I'm sure it's a conspiracy. It's become very evident that <laughs> if if your name ain't John Smith, I'm going to have a problem with it. Uh, but anyway, here we go. Jiva Padma. Jiva Padma. Jiva Padma. Is that right? Jiva Padma. For sure. Okay, yeah. there you go. Jiva Padma wants to know Jiva's this. Jiva's sitting there saying, like, absolutely. Not. Exactly. <laughs> we all agree. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's it. She's exactly. like, what? She's like, what? My name. <laughs> so she wants to know this. Um, if the brain is a result of multiple neuron network, which makes us what we are, then do we humans serve as a neuron network to any Higher brain. So this is kind of like what we were talking that about with the air function. colony. Yeah. Let's think about a, a corporation like uh, like Apple. Okay. Or Google. You know, we talk all the time. Apple doesn't want to do this. Right. Apple feels like this. They're delaying this in order to make that happen. We talk about corporations as if they're people all right. the time. Wasn't it Mitt Romney? Who yes. Said, corporations, corporations are people. Corporations are friend. people too. He did. Oh, he did. Oh, yes, God. he did. Yeah. yeah. So some people take that seriously. They say, well, you know, corporations really do think things. They believe things, they want things, they act. Then the question is, do they feel? Do they see? Do they hear? That's a further question, but you know, it's not obvious what it is that's missing in, say, a corporation or even a country, the United States. So people talk about the United States as, as, uh, as doing stuff all the time. A philosopher, Eric Schwitzgabel, wrote a paper saying, if various theories of consciousness are true, the United States as a whole is conscious. I think there are these group dynamics that a dynamics emerge at a at a group level, mm -hmm. not just the individual, for sure. But the question is, do those larger do they do they have consciousness? Do they have feelings? And again, this depends on what theory you are adhering to. If you talk about this which Dave, I think, is is a, a fan of the integrated information theory that you know consciousness is this fundamental property of the universe, and you get it, you can calculate it, this mathematical calculation by how much integrated information there is. You would say a corporation or America has a certain degree of integrated information and a certain level of phi, what we'd call. Okay, right? maybe it's lower but, than for a brain. Right, yeah. but this is the point. One of the axioms of this theory is that, or well, basically, one of the rules says that if any system that might have a lot of different bits of integrated information going on, the one with the highest degree of phi, the most integrated information, supersedes the others. It takes over into the main stage of consciousness. So because the human brain, the individual, has such a high degree of phi, that's always going to be the more conscious thing than anything 
like a group. So any groupthink or any collective consciousness would always be a to a lesser degree than a single brain. And not just to a lesser degree, it would be superseded by the bigger phi, which is our individual. So it won't exist now, as a So now you're telling me you put Albert Einstein inside my brain, to, like a miniature version of Albert Einstein mm-hmm. inside my brain to replace one of my neurons. And a whole bunch of little Einsteins start sending signals around in my brain, you know, replacing a bunch of the neurons. So I'm going to lose my consciousness because Einstein is more conscious than I am? Well, this is the, according to this theory, mm. if we could... That's a, that's a great question, man. <laughs> yeah, according I, to this theory, it would be wow. yes. It would be yes. And also... Another interesting question is, let's say, and I think we will eventually get to this technology where I can hook up my brain to your brain. Well, yes. Okay. Uh, and then, definitely and then you think, Elon oh, Musk is working on Neuralink. We're going to put these yes. things around our brain. Neural and net. And neural net. And, oh, a neural link. Neural link, I think, to connect yes. with each other. Yeah. So that, but, but then. First, he's, uh, he's actually doing it with machines right now. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so we do know that we can link to machines with our brain. Yeah. So you know it's only a matter of time before we're able to link to each other. But so, go ahead. But when we do, so then I'm like, okay, what will that feel like? Because you're going to have this high degree of inter- integrated information, mine and yours, and you put them together, it's going to create a higher degree. And so according to this theory, and I've spoken with the people who developed the theory, is that each of our individual consciousnesses will immediately disappear and we will become this higher hive mind I talk old stars hive mind yeah (laughs) (laughs) you cosmic queries will be in there too Uh, we're all going in a hive mind okay well I think that's all we have yeah that's all we have time man what a fun show this was wow that's it for this episode of star talk all stars big thanks to my co-host Chuck Nice it was a pleasure And thank you, David, for dropping in. It was a lot of fun. I've been your host, Heather Berlin. Until next time, stay conscious. 